Productions. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Well, I'm delighted to welcome our next guest to the podcast, uh, Dr. Rob Carnahan. Uh, Rob received his BS in biology and a BS in psychology from Indiana University. Um, after several years working for Eli Lilly in the U.S. and in Strasbourg, France, he returned to academics as a visiting researcher at the Institut Pasteur in Paris, France, and then subsequently returned to the U.S. to complete his Ph.D. in cell biology at Vanderbilt University where he studied the mechanisms regulating actin ring formation and activation in cytokinesis in the laboratory of Kathy Gould. Dr. Carnahan is now an associate professor in uh, cancer biology and a faculty director of the Management and Entrepreneurship for Scientists program and a member of the Medical School Admissions Committee and faculty instruction for both MD and PhD training programs. In 2010, notably, he co-founded the Antibody Technologies Research Group. Um, it's an international group that collaborates to develop technical standards, advances in methodologies, and training opportunities for antibody lab directors and personnel. Dr. Carnahan is also a recognized expert in lean laboratory management practices. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, maybe we uh, jump right in and uh, hear a little bit about kind of what got you on the path um, uh, in science um, and maybe talk a little bit about your early career um, in both industry and academia and maybe a little of the differences on both and then, uh, you know, weaving in, you know, what, what it's like to work over in France and then come back to the U.S. thereafter. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I came from actually a really small town um, where, you know, Back at that time, maybe the high school was a little, I would say, not, not to standards for, for nowadays. Uh, so I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to science um, as a growing up. I went to uh, Indiana University, I thought, to be a lawyer. Uh, and one of the things in the major I was doing at the time, which was psychology, is you had to take some hard science minor. They required that. You, they kind of give you, at least in the program I was in. So I started taking these biology classes on the side as kind of a required minor on my pathway to becoming a lawyer. Uh, and I, it really led to this moment. Uh, it was a pretty difficult moment for me because I was about three years in, three and a half years into a bachelor's degree and just had this crisis. I'm like, wow, I really, really love going to my biology classes and I'm only tolerating everything else. Do I want to like pull the trigger and which was going to activate me staying at this university for at least another semester or two extra? And I really wrestled with it. Fortunately, my girlfriend, now, now wife at the time, was like, you know, do you, this is like lifetime decision, an extra semester or two compared to your life, you know. Uh, so she was super encouraging that way. And I ended up doing that, staying for an extra semester or two. Uh, and was very happy to, uh, with that decision. Um, I don't know, I just had a natural affinity for this, the, the, the more like tangible, demonstrable science that I was getting in the biology classes I was taking than some of the other stuff. It just appealed to me. Um, and in that, uh, you know, sort of a Forrest Gump moment, literally, I was sitting in a hallway my senior year, 
uh, and one of the faculty members walked down the hallway. I was studying for a quiz for his class. And he said, um, Robert, what are you doing next semester? Or what, because I was about to graduate. What are you doing next year? I said, you know, I, I know I need to take a little time off. I want to go to graduate school, but I know I need a minute off. I was working a job and had done all, you know, I was getting kind of tired. He's like, well, I have this friend at Eli Lilly who recruits people there for like three to six months stint who are going to go on to graduate school. Do you want me to connect you? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and, and went and connected with them, and that kind of got the whole Eli Lilly thing started, which was, was great. It was a, a lot of fun. I worked in Indianapolis in basic research for a while. And as I tell people, I, I kind of trick them into sending me to France. Um, <laughs> They don't do that, you know. When I, so basically, I wanted to go work abroad. My wife had been abroad. We wanted to go to France for a while, and just we were young uh, and wanted to try that out. And I went into the HR. The HR person had weekly um, office hours. And you come in. Ask, I was a temp. Honestly, I was working there, but I wasn't like an actual Lily employee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, I went in, I said, I want to go work at your plant. I've looked it up. There's one in Strasbourg, France. I want to go work there for a couple years. And he said, um, well, that's really nice. Uh, that's never going to happen. Uh, let me tell you, we only send actual Lily employees of which you are not one to work abroad. And of those Lily employees, they have to have been with the company for five years or more. And there actually has to be a need for them. <laughs> I'm really interested to hear what uh, form of trickery you were able to use to to get yourself over there. Well, I think it's just good old fashioned uh, middle Midwestern persistence. <laughs> so he's, but the funny he, here's where he said he's like it's never going to happen. But here he's let me tell you something. I just happened to have been at a Lilly conference where all the HR directors from around the world met, and I just met the HR director for Strasbourg. He's a really nice guy. He's not going to hire you. There's, I don't see any way it could happen. But just, just to, because I, I think he kind of was sort of to respect my initiative. Said, I'll just drop him an email and see. So he drops him an email, and the guy writes back and says, you know what? Uh, we actually might need a microbiologist here. And so I literally went through this three or four step process. That guy invites me back and he's like, look, he says he's willing to talk with you by phone. It is never going to work. They're like, between you and there are like six un, uh, like unscalable bureaucratic walls that you're not going to get through. But why don't you go ahead and talk with him? So I went and talked with him and then that led to another phone call with the person. And basically it, what worked out is that they wanted to hire someone they could fire. <laughs> they had a two-year project where they needed a microbiologist to come in and work on this project for two years. And at the end of the two years, they wanted the person to go away. Okay. And that uniquely suited me as a young person, also a foreign national, who was easily fireable. Um, and so, you know, I made it through some hurdles. And I, again, I, I qualified equally because they thought I was a good fit and because they knew that they could fire me. So that's kind of the, <laughs> the one time where I was hired because I knew I was so darn fireable. <laughs> I, I love it. That's a great story. Yeah. And I mean, it's almost reminiscent, though, of just uh, kind of getting a company off the ground and just that dogged persistence and being in the right place at the right time and, and yeah. asking the question. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's a, great, a great outcome. So you end up in France. Um, you're, you've, you know, taken advantage of, um, you know, the opportunity to be there. Was the nature of the work similar to what you were doing, um, in Indianapolis at Lilly or did that change a little bit? Yeah, that actually changed a lot. I, I really, 
value that time. So in Lilly, I was in basic research, which is kind of where I've gone back to. That was definitely applied. So they, they had a, a new facility where they were filling insulin vials, and um, that's a really difficult kind of thing to do in the pharmaceutical industry because you're, 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 the sterility requirements are quite high because you're literally injecting whatever's in that vial is going directly into a, a patient. Um, and so the, uh, what they wanted to do is historically and still to this day, not, not completely, a lot of those kinds of medicines were filled in clean rooms. So everyone wears these Tyvek bunny suits and they do a bunch of sterility testing. And, and Lilly and other manufacturers wanted to try out this idea called isolators, where basically on a weekend you would, op you would have this, all the production machinery was inside of stainless steel and glass container with only glove port access. So you'd open it once a week, do the required maintenance, wipe it down, shut it, seal it, and then pump it full of vaporized hydrogen peroxide, which kills everything. So you kill everything, and then you run it for a week or two, and then you open it up, break it down, go through the same process. Well, the problem was the FDA, they had to prove to the FDA that it was superior to the clean room approach. And that involved not only engineering and filling, but microbiology. Are we able to make that a sterile environment? So I went there for two years to help them prove that they could fill in a sterile format, which we were able to do. And then I got fired. Um, <laughs> it, <happened. laughs> it was much more amicable than that. But there I said, thank you very much. Uh, you can move along now. Uh, so it was very different. But then, when, then I, I continued with Lily at the Pasteur and went back to doing a year of basic research at Pasteur before I decided to come back to the United States and come to Vanderbilt. So... But it was really good to see that side of the company, be part of like a company environment where there was a mission. You know, that was mm -hmm. the difference for me. Like there's a whole mission. Everybody's unified on the mission anyway. Well, and you had a core team that was trying to push forward in this area and advance yeah. uh, kind of a new area or a new field. So that um, that's an exciting team to be part of. So you came back um, and it's your story is interesting because sometimes, you know, people will say, well, from you know an early age, I really wanted to you know be a biologist, or want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer, and uh -huh. maybe in your case that's what you were saying. I want to be a lawyer, but uh -huh. then you got into it and you found out that you had this affinity for um, biology and science. Um, so it wasn't really a person. It sounds like that kind of influenced you down that way. It was more of the things that you experienced um, as you kind of kept. Um, to, your, to, to your point, kind of you know you you endured the law school classes to really appreciate the. The, yeah. the science classes, but any comments around that? Because part of what yeah. I'm curious about is then you decide to go deeper. You know, you, then you pursued yeah. your, your PhD. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more. Well, I will say you said it wasn't a person. I don't think it was a person. And I did have an affinity for the science, but there were a series of people that I didn't really go into. And to me, at least, one of the things I loved about science was the, the, the open-ended curiosity so I guess that was something I had. I was a curious person. I like to look into things I didn't understand and try to figure them out. And along the way through when I was doing those biology classes, and then a key person was when I went to Lilly in Indianapolis before I went to Strasburg, the guy who I worked for there, his name was Bill Alborn, um, the one of the most curious people I've ever met. And just you working around those kind of people who just have this passion for curiosity. How is this working? And also, People who can say, I'm curious about this, and I think you can figure it out. I think we can figure this out, mm -hmm. um, was awesome. So that kind of thing is like, like lit the fire in me, like let's do stuff where we're super curious and things that no one knows, but maybe we have the ability to figure them out. 
So that's I'm interesting. So you know, one of the nice things I really loved my time in Strasbourg, France. It was cure. It was a curiosity exploration, but with more limitations. You know, because it was a very defined problem. You know, this isolation units and microbiology. It was interesting, but. I knew at that point, like, this is fun for a year or two, but not fun enough for life for me. <laughs> so that's why yeah, I wanted to go deeper. Sure. I want to go to something deeper and more open-ended. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So then you you came back to, to Vanderbilt, and then did you immediately then engage in your PhD pursuit, or was there uh, um, any interim phase there, but ultimately kind of got into the, the PhD program? No, I, I came here explicitly to do a PhD. Um, I interviewed from overseas and honestly moved to Nashville sight unseen. I'd never been to Nashville. Um, moved here with my wife and um, we've been here ever since. But yeah, I came here for graduate school and it was a, it was a good choice. We never left, I guess. So. Yeah, and then you stayed on in, in academia thereafter. And maybe you could compare and contrast a little bit, you know, your experience, mm -hmm. you know, in industry at Lilly. Um, to uh, academia and how what what similarities there might be and then what what's different mm -hmm. about academia and you know were you able to kind of or are you able to continue to kind of mm -hmm. uh, stay curious yeah yeah I think I was fortunate um, so I did my graduate work here and a postdoc here and then ended up running a lab here that did what's called monoclonal antibody discovery and the cool thing about that lab was it was a lab set up by the institution that had this element of like basic exploration, trying to figure out how to solve problems, but at the same time was very applied. We were doing it on behalf of other investigators. So they would come with unique and specific problems. Um, they would basically pay our salaries during the time we were solving their problem. Um, uh, and then we would try to do it. And, and so for me, at least, it involved a lot of things that I felt like I kind of was, you know, you have these moments sometimes where you're like, ah, oh, wow, I was kind of uniquely I'm kind of uniquely formed to be able to do this. I had some of the industry experience, so I, was, I really still could enjoy like a very specific and problem, practical problem, I guess, trying to solve a practical issue that involved basic science, but still have that pretty open-ended exploration of like, we don't actually know where the answer is. We need antibodies that work in this certain way or do this certain thing, um, but it's and it's up to us to find them. The other thing which was, you know, it, there, it sort of took on a business element because we had to get enough projects to keep us getting paid. And I, you know, I had people working for me, three or four people working for me. And so um, that's kind of where like me getting more into lean management and trying to figure out, well, how can we do this better and faster and still actually at the end of the day need less money? So we, we did tons of, you know, and so we took that on as a science experiment too. I, I was fortunate to recruit one of my technicians, my highest technician, was also interested in business. And she and I kind of went down this road of lean management. And our goal was like, well, I bet we can do this better and faster. And no one's actually thought, I bet we can actually make it all cost less. So we did this like two year thing of like re renovating how we ran things in the lab and over that process, we dropped the amount of supply costs needed to do a project by something like 50% while doing twice as many projects. That's super cool. Just by That's sitting cool. and thinking about it. So but we took it all as a science experiment. We literally would run experiments. We'd sit down with the whiteboard and be like, okay, let's do an experiment around inventory. What if we did it this way? And so that was a lot of fun for us. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. And the way you're describing um, the platform, it's almost like a mini company 
inside yep. of Vanderbilt. I mean, you had end users. You know, there was a yep. financial component. There's yep. a sur- there's a survival or existential risk. You know, that <laughs> keeps sure. you up at night. You know, and you've uh-huh. got a team that relies on you and that type uh-huh. of responsibility. So very entrepreneurial inside yep. of a a large academic. Um, institution. So uh, very, very interesting. And is that, uh, w- was the main goal to kind of make antibodies to, to fuel their uh, development as potential therapeutics or j- a little bit more background um, around when you produce the antibodies, you know, what was the main use for those fellow faculty members? Yeah. So I guess I'll, t- I'll tell you two, two things. When I ran that group for 10 years, and I don't run that group anymore, uh, and so there's a difference with what I'm doing now. I'll tell you that in a second. But with that group, we really just took all comers. I'd say something like 25% of the projects had some therapeutic use in mind. So they really were targeting typically cancer. Um, they were Because it was in the cancer center. It's where a lot of cancer projects. Um, the other ones were various and sundry research projects. They needed the antibodies because they were trying to build, they're, they're trying to test a hypothesis and antibodies were part of testing the hypothesis or they just needed a basic reagent research tool to like further their research. So mostly not. Um, I really enjoyed the therapeutic projects and that's why over time I got involved in like the entrepreneurship programs and trying to help some of these people who were discovering antibodies that had therapeutic applications could we find a way for them to like facilitate taking that intellectual property and doing something with it? You know, mm-hmm. like, because, you know, if you can take a, one approach is just to sit around and wait for a company to find you, a big company. That can sometimes work if you're high profile and the target's, you know, already kind of been known. If you're the one who's breaking ground on whether this is an even an interesting topic, target, the companies are not necessarily going to come find you. You got to build something to bring notice, you know, you're not going to bring it to the clinic because that's a big company function. But what small companies can do is like grow this intellectual property up to a point where it becomes a meaningful asset for somebody else. Uh, or, or, Or maybe you get enough investors, you really can take it further, but you know, either way it's, it's kind of building it. I, I like those projects so much that honestly in 2017, I left that lab and came to the Vanderbilt Vaccine Center, which is where I work now as the associate director of the center. And I came here because me and the director have a vision of, of translating antibody therapeutics into the clinic. Wow. And that's like the core part of what we do every day. And so here I get to focus exclusively on that, almost uh, all in infectious disease. So we worked on COVID and all these other things but like now every day we think about like from day from the beginning step of the project when we're even thinking about working on the project here we're saying what's the translation like if we were to invent an antibody to this target yeah. how would we invent one that has ability to translate into a clinical use yeah, exactly. And so the outputs of all that work and that, you know, what arose from the basic science and now applied, you know, to a given target or, or antibody development program, the translation you're describing is translating that I- idea and concept um, into what one day could be a, a, a drug or a therapeutic that's actually treating patients, yeah. um, you know, in, in the clinic. And I'm just fascinated, you know, with your timing, you know, 2017 through now, um, and, and working primarily in infectious disease, maybe you could comment a little bit about uh, the pandemic, you know, and, you know, the, the, your role in that, that process and some of the things that were uh, taking place, you know, that have led to, you know, the exciting developments, uh, certainly on the vaccine side, but then also 
um, on the um, antibody, you know, antiviral approaches still needed, especially yeah. as the virus yeah. continues to to evolve. Yeah. And, and today we're hearing a lot about RSV, and so you yeah, know, yeah, vir yeah. virology and infectious disease is not going away. Just any yeah. of your comments around, you know, uh, exciting components of yeah. or or uh, or or more, um, you know, of, of the experience during the pandemic to try to yeah. kind of go after and understand the the spike protein in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of interesting timing. It, you know, in, in retrospect, it turned out to be kind of perfect for me. So I, I came over here because uh, the center had just been awarded a contract with DARPA. And it, to me, was an interesting challenge because it was that the idea was that, well, antibodies for infectious diseases are already a known thing. There, was, there are antibodies on the market, like there's for RSV, Synergis, and some other ones coming onto the market for infectious disease. So we know it's a known thing. Uh, and antibodies have a unique advantages or at least a unique use cases with respect to every other kind of vaccine or antivirals. They, they all have their place. Antibodies have a kind of interesting properties where they can fill some unique holes. But the problem was for antibodies is the general development thing was uh, for was two to four years. Once you started on an antibody, two to four years, maybe you'd have something ready for the clinic. And DARPA put out these these you know they put out these ideas, these concepts that are impossible. That's kind of what they do. That's why they invented the internet and stealth bombers and all these other things. Is because they say, okay, here's what we want you to do. We want you to do something that is just right next to impossible. So they're just right next to impossible. Is we want you to discover antibody therapeutics and have them ready to put in humans in 60 days. <laughs> and we're like, that's crazy. That's two that's to four crazy. years, 60 that days. That is, that's like yeah. nonsensical. Yeah. But we, the, 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 my boss here, the director center, was, was kind of naive enough to at least say, okay, let's apply for the award. And we got it. And when he got it, he's, he asked me to come join him and help run this program because he also knew that like it wasn't just science. At that point, it's logistics. It's lean, you know, the lean management part really came in and he want, he's like, you might be good at this. And I was like, well, if I get to run the DARPA program, I'll come join you. And so, and so I did. And so I was here long enough. We got to run two years of, of work in that program, a lot of which when you work with DARPA that's different than sort of traditional NIH awards uh, are that you actually have to show what you've done. So an NIH award, you say, I'm going to do something. And then you write some reports on whether you did or didn't do it. And that's fine. With DARPA, you say, okay, I, I want to do something, and here I'm going to do it. And they say, okay, well, now we're going to test you. <laughs> Can you really do it? So like in 2019, in 2018, we said, hey, we think we've got this down where we can do this. We've gotten two to four years down to 90 days. We think we can do it in 90 days. And they said, oh, you think you can do it in 90 days? Prove it. We're going to give you a blood sample, which is we start with human blood samples to get our antibodies. And in 90 days, we want to have an, an antibody drug ready to use for Zika, Zika virus. Yep. And so they tested us on it. And we, you know, we did it. We, in 78 days, we were able to go from human blood samples with uh, B cells in there that made antibodies, find the antibodies that were protective, and actually turn those into antibody drugs and show in vivo that they had efficacy wow. in 78 days. Wow. So that was a lot of fun. After it, we thought, wow, that was a real pain in the butt. I really don't want to do that anymore because we could do it. But man, we were working seven days a week, literally yeah. like here, you know, around the clock. And it was really terrible. In fact, my, our lead scientist, that's exactly what he said. When it was all done, he said, it was exhilarating. And he said, that he's like, that was a lot of fun. Don't ever ask me to do that again. <laughs> Quite an adventure. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. 
Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. Yeah, and back to the, your theme, though, around just kind of organized around a mission that, that's also encapsulated in that project as well. I can tell with your body language and your facial expressions yeah. that um, I can see that you're both, you were both excited by it, but also yeah. worn down by it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was the challenges. Exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And that didn't begin to prepare us for what was ahead, which was in January 2020, um, everybody knows COVID pandemic hits, and we got what called activated. So our DARPA program officer came to us and said, we're converting all your funding to, to COVID. We need you to just work on COVID. Um, and so we did. And that was, uh, we, we, we took about eight people in the lab. Um, the rest of the lab couldn't work because the institution was shut down. Unless you were working on COVID, you weren't allowed to work. So the eight of us began this you know, sprint to try to find COVID antibodies. Um, it involved a lot more logistical hurdles. You know, we, one, again, one of our key parts is we need to find humans who've been exposed to the virus. That's where we get the B cells that lead to the antibodies. So like the extra element on top of that is we're searching around the world trying to identify donors who are, have the, kind of the right profile, which I, I won't go into. We ended up finding some donors we were super interested in who were in Toronto, Canada. So in the midst of a pandemic, the country borders are shut down. The best donors we find are in Toronto, of course. <laughs> Um, we had fortunately kind of laid a lot of groundwork in working with FedEx, funnily enough. And so we went to our FedEx guys and said, hey, we have a sample that we think is super important, might actually save lives. It's in Toronto. Can you get it to us? Huh. And, you know, we worked through it with them. We were able to get those samples here and then really begin on the antibody discovery thing. And, you know, I guess we're quite proud of it. We did 78 days when we thought it counted. And in COVID, we were able to do the same thing in 56 days. Oh, my God. So yeah, we were able amazing. in, yeah, by May, identify protective antibodies, which we had been in a relationship with AstraZeneca during this discovery process. They picked those antibodies up, and then they did their part for, you know, developing those. And those are the antibodies that actually became a drug called Evusheld, which made it through uh, all the way through clinical trials and is now emergency use authorization. Um, they That's had a amazing. really great idea. Yeah, it was crazy and fun. We, we, yeah. you know, we, we took care of the virology and the antiviral antibody part. The cool part they added on, which I think this is like something people can think about when you work with companies, is these are super smart people and they know a lot of stuff that us basic people don't need know. And their vision, I think, which was really cool, was they saw a specific market, which was at that time, and people who were doing the antibody discovery all the other companies were thinking about these as uh, use in treatment. So once people already have COVID, they, they, what they identified is the people who are going to be uniquely harmed by a pandemic like this are the immunocompromised. Yes. These are people who eventually the rest of us will get a vaccine, but the vaccine is not going to help these people, or at least it's going to not help them as much. And so from day one, they customized our antibodies and tailored everything about the product to be targeting immunocompromised 
folks. And we're so, so proud of what they did. Yeah. Um, and at this point, you know, out, it's out there, you know, 2 million doses have been given. It's incredible. Uh, it's no compromise. So how does that cool. feel to be part of something like that and the impact that, um, you know, you, you are having and have had, you know, through uh, that project alone? What, what's that like? <laughs> I, I hope anyone would say this, like, the thing you remember are the people that you did it with. Mm -hmm. You know, like no one of us, not one person on there was dispensable. Like everyone brought their best to it. And it was like the collection of like eight or 10 people here at Vanderbilt, us connecting with the AstraZeneca team. And they had eight or 10 people. I remember this months of transitioning the product over to them where they were starting to do the work on their side and sometimes asking us advice, but just see them be awesome at what they were good at. You know, they let us be great, good at what we were good at. And then we just got to turn around and watch them be awesome at what they were good at. So it was, that really was just like, it takes so many people for something like that to come together and work. Like the thing you always remember was that sense of like, uh, connectedness that you had to have. And, you know, we str I honestly, I think a lot of us who did that, when you were in it, you know, it was hard. Um, but when you think back on it, you had such a, we had such a singularity of focus yep. that we kind of functioned as an organism. Mm. When one person, like when we came and went from the lab, our communication was just, we, we, we melded into this <laughs> super organism for a while. And you, you never have that really outside of a crisis, unfortunately. It doesn't feel like it, at least. It's, at least it amplifies it to a level where you're like, it takes away everything else. Like everything, there's no noise. It's just focus. <laughs> it's it's interesting. I bet you know. Again, drawing back to your you know uh, early days of experience with uh, with Lily, um, I, I would bet that a lot of that experience you know still kind of informed. Um, and you even um, made the statement that a lot of the development of your current platform um, was centered around your kind of almost industrializing you know the yeah. way that you thought about and were producing these these. Uh, uh, antibodies or, or doing the basic research around them. And I would imagine that that also was a critical component, the readiness that you had and the systems, because mm -hmm. so much can go wrong. You know, you you brought it to a certain point, but putting it in someone else's hands to be able to take it forward and get it across the finish line, um, the technology transfer process, if you will, can mm -hmm. be very complicated. And so yeah. I, it seems to me, based on the success story that you described there in record time, that you know, your systems and your organizational process led to a smooth transition you know, to the AstraZeneca side. I just wonder if that, you know, part of that you know, came through with your early experience around what it's like to be at an AstraZeneca with your former role at Lilly. Some of it is people in different sort of who operate in different spheres. Sometimes there's this distrust. And I think we have, you know, like academia might distrust pharmaceutical industry and, and sort of question, question each other's motives or, or, or even how they do stuff. Having been on the inside, I mean, I just have so much respect. You know, my mentor, Bill, the one I mentioned earlier, like he worked at a pharmaceutical company, but he got up every day. It wasn't his passion was coming up with ways to make people's lives better. That's it. Mm -hmm. And so when you know some of those people and then now you're interfacing with AstraZeneca, you know, we just gave them all the credit in the world. There was never any kind of suspicion of like what they were trying. We knew every day they got up, they were trying to make the world a better place in their own way. 
in their own sort of location, their own organization, but just like us, you know, they're no different. They were really trying to make the world a better place. Um, there are certain constraints on how they did that, and yeah. they're in a private company, so they have to do it within rules, you know, that, that kind of make that company sustainable. Yeah. So that, I think that was super helpful. I think the other thing is, since we, and this kind of maybe is more direct to your question, um, we do pride ourselves here in, 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 in our part of academia about being to industry standards, right? So the way we're testing things, the rigorousness with which we do stuff, even the carefulness at which with which we ship things to people and with the cold chain handling of things, like these are sometimes things that in academia people haven't really had a lot of experience with just how important that is on the industrial side. Since not only me, but a couple other people who work here in the center, we've had that experience. You know, I think it makes it kind of seamless with the, and it builds trust from there to us, right? So our distrust from them, I just told you, I had a lot of trust. Well, how did they trust us? I think pretty early on they could see like, we had a level of carefulness. Yes. We had a level of consideration that was respectful yeah. of their needs and could ha understand like their scientific and, and needs on their side. So I think that kind of, Again, made it so we didn't waste a bunch of time when yeah. we got connected up. We didn't waste weeks arguing about things or whatever. If from day one we had a meeting, we had a couple things we did together, we instantly kind of felt like, okay, we can work together. And so all the other stuff went away and it just got down to like, how fast can we do this? <laughs> No, that's that that's outstanding. And you know, one of the things that comes to mind as you're talking about this, and um, you know, the the success story uh, that you're just describing here, um, having you know, kind of been a biotech entrepreneur now for the past couple of decades, and leaning in um, pretty dramatically into the academic ecosystem in the last decade, um, you know, it's apparent to me that. Uh, Top flight research institutions are also recognizing the importance of translation. And, um, you know, the faculty they're trying to recruit are motivated by translation, maybe more, more so than ever. Not that basic research isn't critically important and that other academic pursuits aren't critical to the mission of a, of a great research institution, but a growing um, focus by academic research institutions around prioritizing innovation so that more of those early ideas uh, don't die on the shelf, you know, in the academic labs, but rather have an opportunity to um, uh, get outside and, and, and have impact. And oftentimes that's through uh, a startup that gets formed, you know, by the faculty member. Uh, sometimes it could be a collaboration like the one you've just enjoyed with, with AstraZeneca. But all of it involves some type of kind of translation and, uh, and transition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, universities have invested heavily into their innovation architecture, you know, here um, in Chicago. Uh, where Portal is located uh, with its first laboratory. Um, we work closely with the University of Chicago and Northwestern, University of Illinois, and there's been a tremendous amount of investment into making it easier for faculty to um, start a company around their idea, license uh, the intellectual property, um, and that's made it more attractive to outside investors that are seeing the opportunity to get behind these ideas. Um, it, Chicago is still a young emerging ecosystem when compared to places like Boston and the Bay Area. But I think the groundwork has been laid um, and the attraction of these top tier faculty now that they're in the region, um, there's opportunity for those um, 
faculty to generate good ideas that turn into great companies that uh, ultimately go on to help help patients. I wanted to maybe just get your thoughts around your observations um, around what makes for um, an ideal environment for that type of faculty to thrive and then stay um, that, that, you know, would be part of the academic uh, um, ecosystem, but also straddle into industry. How, how, does, uh, how do academic institutions attract those types of people, people like you? Um, and then how do we get them to stay uh, at the institution yeah. as well? Yeah. Really complicated question. I think some of it is starts with, like, how do we... How do we set metrics up for new faculty members? You know, we, we, think, we think about, it's pretty easy historically in academia, the metrics get an NIH grant or an NSF grant, get government funding, you know, get grant funding, publish papers and in highly ranked journals. And like those are understandable metrics that everyone gets. But what about things like startup companies being part, not just like, uh, everyone is time constrained. And if you don't set up a metric to kind of allow people to use that very precious time they have, then they're probably not going to focus on those things. They have to be kind of, the institution has to be not just thinking, oh, this would be great, but I think setting up metrics around that. You know, interactions with tech transfer office, metrics that kind of drive those kind of interactions, metrics that... You know, that it doesn't have to be in place of what people are doing, but they're alternative metrics that might fit better for certain kinds of faculty that allows them to dedicate their precious time and research and resources towards something that might land a startup company, that might be a licensing opportunity. You know, you said the word impact earlier. Uh, Alan Bentley, who's the director of tech transfer here at Vanderbilt, that's one of his words is like, we just need to like, instead of saying it's a pay, we're looking for impact. So what are all the metrics that we could set up for impact? Publishing a high ranking paper is definitely one of those. Getting attractive outside funding, that that's, you know, a way to get towards impact. But so is founding a company. So is a licensing opportunity. So, you know, these all, so I think that's part of it. Front end, like making the progression through a professorship <laughs> have some new metrics in it that maybe we haven't historically included and then make it possible to achieve those metrics right a young faculty member or even a, even a mid-career faculty member is being pulled in a million different directions administrative responsibilities and teaching and you know like how can we make things easier for them or someone in their lab like a postdoc or graduate student to have access to advice in the form of people who've been down the road, uh, camaraderie, people, you know, like putting them together with other groups of people who are trying to translate things, putting them with the tech transfer office who can tell them, well, here's what a commercialization process looks like. Even if you don't want to start a company, here's how you can make an intellectual property piece of attractive, more attractive. Here's some things that would make it licensable. Having wet lab space, like, like you just mentioned, for your, you guys have in Chicago. I mean, at the end of the day, sometimes you have an intellectual property item which looks very likely to have value, and it doesn't require a lot more work. But there's some key things that need to be done that are wet labs things mm -hmm. that just can't yeah. be done in a government or academic funded lab. They really need to kind of transition somewhere so that the right kind of experiment can be done. So. It's removing barriers. Set up the metrics and then remove the barriers to attain those metrics. So whatever the institution can do to remove those barriers, some of them are smaller than people think, right? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I don't know. 
Yeah, no, that, that I think is well characterized and well stated. And I think part of what you're talking about there too is, again, making it uh, an, an attractive place. I've used kind of the metaphor of, you know, as, as these top research institutions are seeking to attract and retain that type of faculty, um, it, it's almost a recruiting uh, exercise that's rivaled by, you know, if you have a Division One football program, you know, trying to bring in and recruit a five-star, you know, linebacker that's, you know, coming in and visiting on a, a given Saturday afternoon. You know, you show them the the locker room, the jerseys on the back with their name on it. You know, there's the weight room around the corner, <clears throat> the practice facility, and then where they're going to play on Saturdays. And yeah. I just watch a lot of the, uh, the top research institutions taking the same approach. Mm -hmm. to thinking about innovation faculty because yeah. the outsized impact that you know one two three of those individuals can have think about a bob langer in boston or yeah. a john yeah, rogers yeah. in chicago and 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 yeah. others you know that that we can kind of rattle off the numbers of companies they've been involved in um you know attracting those types of individuals to an institution can have outsized impact not only on the institution but then on the surrounding ecosystem as well. I want to get your thoughts on Nashville. I mean, you know, Vanderbilt um, really just is a, um, a powerhouse and, and a gem and attracts a lot of NIH funding and, um, mm. and from my observation are attracting, you know, key faculty that are now, you know, ready to translate. What, what are your observations around Nashville and the, um, mm -hmm. the culture uh, to accept and maybe support, uh, the, the, you know, building out the biotech ecosystem? Yeah, sure. I, I, you know, I think we're, I would say Vander, Nashville, you know, like you, you said, uh, Chicago is a, I don't I remember the word, but sort of a younger biotech environment. I would definitely say we're, we're probably even younger than you in that sense. We have a great institution here at Vanderbilt and we live in a great city that people want to live in, right? It's one of the top five most desirable locations that people want to move to in the United States. And it's great country music or music in general, the food here, it's a great place to live. Uh, it's got a lot going for it. Uh, it's like now I think what I'm finally seeing, the institution has relied on those kinds of factors in faculty recruitment. Like, hey, come here. It's a great place to live. It's a super collaborative environment. Um, we attract a lot of NIH funding, and that's all great. But now we're seeing, well, yeah, a lot of other places can offer that too. So can North Carolina and you know a bunch of other places can offer that. So um, what can we offer people who are hungry for innovative atmosphere? And I think we're starting to make some traction there. We have some unique advantages here in Nashville. The, we're not totally landlocked. There are some opportunities for that. The, there's a collaborative nature, I think, which comes not only from Vanderbilt, but the, the you know, Nashville being a center for um, music, I feel like has influenced the institution to be a collaborative place. Like at the heart of good music is good collaboration. So there's this expectation in Nashville that you'll be helpful, you'll be collaborative, you'll work together, and that permeates our institution too. And those are all really great characteristics for good startup environments as well. Because again, no one can lift that all by themselves. It takes this network of interaction and collaboration, I think, is a key part. So I think we have a lot of opportunities. I'm happy that we're, we are, I think, starting to make real tangible progress here um, with dry incubator space and wet incubator space on the way, um, a network to coordinate innovators here, which is growing. Our tech transfer office has always been very forward looking and they're doing some stuff, I think, which is really helpful. So I, ha I have a lot of hope that we're, we're, we're young, but we're building. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would confirm that from the outside as well. You could see the potential, and it is, yeah, a young emerging ecosystem just getting started. Um, and, you know, some of the pieces 
that as you get up to scale, you know, are still, you know, yet to come into the equation. But I think the point around being a growth city uh, that attracts talent um, and in the in the age of, you know, kind of post pandemic world where, you know, remote talent can be brought in, you know, via, you know, Zoom management around a core team that's localized, you know, for example, in, in Nashville, you know, you can you can now do that more readily on a, in a distributed fashion. So I think it augurs well for emerging ecosystems like like Nashville. And I would say, um, having spent a lot of time down there, um, you know, in the past uh, two years, uh, Tennessee itself, more broadly, is very welcoming to uh, biotech and entrepreneurship. Yep. And, you know, the, the state, you know, looks to want to attract and invest in. And so all those kind of uh, creating the right environment uh, mm -hmm. pieces are, are in place. Um, and I think the other elements, you know, encouraging and then making it easier to commercialize, um, as you said, are beginning to, to roll out. Um, and some of it's going to be the hardware, like the lab space. You know, the people that are doing this type of work can't just, you know, work in their bathtub at home and, and right. whip up an antibody. Uh, right. You know, they need specialized uh, instrumentation and access right. to the right types of facilities. And so, you know, hardware is important, um, but the software, meaning the community, the ecosystem, the program, what what to do with the, with the space and 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 who is there and why are they there and how do we how do we work together that spirit of collaboration? Um, I wonder what your your thoughts are around kind of the the future of and, and are there any things that stand out to you in in Nashville? You know, driven by Vanderbilt R and D that you think maybe are um, you know, particularly attractive differentiators to, you know, why either a faculty member would go there, a company would start there, a corporate partner would come in or VCs would, would want to mm -hmm. hang around, you know, in the, in the realm of, of kind of biosciences. Is there any area, you know, of particular strength is, you know, I know AI is big, is AI converging yeah. with biotech mm -hmm. a key theme for Nashville? Just yeah. any thoughts around um, like overarching early themes as the ecosystem starts to percolate? Yeah, I mean, some of them I don't think are completely unique to us, but I mean, I do think Vanderbilt being an excellent uh, training center for both uh, graduate students, undergraduates, and even medical doctors. And in our medical doctor training program here, there's actually a pretty strong interest in like entrepreneurial activity there as well. They have some dedicated programs. I think one of the things where a place like Vanderbilt, you know, they have this brain drain idea, like we train them here and then they go to Boston and the coast and we never. So I think like one thing which could be a real advantage here, if we can create a net to sort of trap some of them here, they want to be trapped. They're fish who want to get caught, uh, you know, but they just don't have the ability to get caught here. So I think like the ability to kind of quickly scale out the number of highly trained individuals who are able to hit the ground running, there's a really good capability for that here because of how we do the training here. I think another thing institutionally, which could be pretty strong, it comes back to this collaborative idea. Vanderbilt has one of the strongest network of what are called core labs in the country, which has been built over decades. Uh, and it was built to service the institution well because there was so much internal collaboration. But these are really high-tech specialized laboratories doing everything from mass spectrometry to CRISPR-Cas9 reprogramming. Vanderbilt is isolated in a sense. We don't have, we're not in a Boston, so we have to build all those labs here. Hmm. And they become quite entrepreneurial within the institution, but the institution has allowed them to also do work for others in the surrounding community. And they're I would say one of the top collection of core labs. So, 
someone planted here, you know, you know, you get the lab to do some stuff specialized, but you can't do it all there. And having access to labs that can do high-end mass spectrometry, can do the kinds of animal, like con high consequence in vivo animal experiments that need to be done or whatever, I think that is a unique kind of thing that could be offered here if the whole ecosystem kind of sets up properly. Um, yeah, and those are those are resources that any one biotech company can't access. The capital intensity around you know that high end mass spec and NMR, you you have yeah. vivariums, you know it, it really takes this, the the density of the of the ecosystem and core labs being those labs where you can provide those sh equipment on a shared service based basis can be a really attractive asset and and a necessity in many ways, you know, to companies yeah. that are kind of, uh, you know, developing, scaling and, and growing. I wanted to know a little bit more about your role um, as faculty director of the Management and Entrepreneurship for Science program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and does it also weave in a little element around the, the talent piece. Um, just yeah. talk talk about that program. Yeah, yeah, sure I will. I will say I've kind of handed the reins over on that for the most part. But if you go back when we started that program, what we saw were a lot of trainees. You know, again, this is like if you go back 10 or 15 years and you were a trainee in a biomedical graduate program, you almost had to pretend like you weren't interested in these kinds of things because it wasn't really thought of as serious, right? You wanted to start a company or you wanted to be involved in a biotech company. You know, you had to kind of keep those things somewhat to yourself because the sort of tried and true pathway was to become an academician and that's what people wanted to train. Mm -hmm. And that was starting to go away when we started this program, but we have, a, I think, a forward-looking graduate training program here who really wanted to bust down some of those barriers and they knew I was interested in this thing, so I partnered with them and we said, well, let's just be completely outward about it. We recruited faculty members from the business school here, from the engineering school here, and said, why don't we put together doable, we put it in modules. So, I mean, these people are full-time graduate students, so they can't take on a whole new academic program. But what they could do is if we could give them, you know, feed them little pieces along the way, they're hungry learners and really smart. So we put together just a series of modules that allowed them to get exposed to business principles, that allowed them to do um, some pitch competitions, and kind of what goes into the thinking behind a pitch. Also just teaching them like, honestly, you know what, you guys are really smart. Like one of the things programs we did is like, why don't you go find something in the literature and pitch it? I bet you'll find something cool because um, you're really smart people. Uh, and they were always able to do that. So just basically kind of empowering them and putting them with people who they don't normally come across like business professors and engineering professors to try to make sort of progress in this area. And then I will say since I've left, uh, I don't really run that, that those modules all continue. The, the, the graduate uh, program that that sits under, the umbrella, they do things now like uh, externships and internships that are connected in with these kinds of programs. So you have, you know, you would go through and take some of these modules and learn about innovation and entrepreneurship, and then they can place you in a startup company mm -hmm. for three months. Yeah. And you go work with them, even as a graduate student, which that may sound like, oh, yeah, they do that uh, lots of places. But for graduate programs, actually, it's really tricky because these people are on training grants. And so you really have to, like, put a considerable amount of thought into making it work, um, which they, to their credit, have done. And so, you know, now I'm kind of like a... Uh, just a, 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 I'm an interested cheerleader uh, and continue <laughs> to see what they're doing. So no, that's that's really cool, and I think essential to kind of creating uh, and adapting the talent pool. Um, it, one part of the the talent pool 
to be organically growing, you know, a, a steady supply of, you know, people that have more exposure to what it means yeah. to be part of a biotech company, the culture begins to shift in that regard to embrace and attract more of those types of people as the program continues to, to snowball. At least that's what I found in other, in other places. Yeah. And, and I think that's essential, you know, you, yeah. as, as Vanderbilt, and Nashville grow and scale as a biotech ecosystem. Um, some of it's going to be organic growth, you know, yeah. on, on the talent side, uh, but some of it's, it will be acquired from the outside. But, but so much will rely on the steady supply of talent that's coming out of Vanderbilt that is tooled maybe in multidisciplinary ways or with different sets of exposures that, you know, the prior generation, you know, didn't, didn't really get that exposure to. Yeah. So what, yeah, that's totally true. And, you know, the, the, like in most things, the younger crowd is more easy to pick up on these things and get moving. So that's why I, I wasn't needed there anymore, and they were running. So I switched over. What I've been doing for the last few years is try to get teach the older dogs new tricks, which is <laughs> faculty. So we have this program. Alan Bentley, I think I mentioned him earlier, the head of tech transfer, and I have this little program called Enabling Innovation, and it's 100% focused on faculty. So what we're doing there, I mean, they're sort of small efforts, but like trying to routinely bring in speakers. You know, these institutions like ours bring in these very high-level speakers who talk about all this world-class science, and that's great. What we're trying to do is bring in speakers who who maybe have done that, but they've also started a company. So like Dane Wittrip is a good example. He's one of the founders of Adumab, this big antibody company. We had him come in sure. and he one day he gave a talk about his basic science work, and then he stayed in a second day gave a talk purely focused on what it's like to be a faculty member who has a startup company. Yeah. And so having these people come in and, and talk about that and really encouraging faculty to come, because a lot of times they have good ideas, but they think, ah, it seems too hard or complicated. Or they can't identify how the metrics line up for them. Yeah. So that's one of the things part of the program. And then what more recently we've done this thing called uh, Innovation Ambassadors, where we're taking one faculty member from every department and trying to train them in all the parts of taking something that we think is an intellectual piece, of, a good, interesting intellectual property, and moving it forward towards commercialization in some way. And our idea was kind of analogous. If, if you're in graduate student departments, there's always this person called the DGS, the Director of Graduate Studies. Studies. And if a student has a problem, they don't know what to do to kind of move their graduate career forward, they always know there's one faculty member in the department who's been trained and they can go talk with that person and they'll give them advice about, well, I'm stuck, here's how you move forward. So we wanna take that analogy and every department in the entire institution plant a faculty member who's been specifically trained, gone through workshops, they know the ecosystem here, they know the opportunities, the resources, the connections, they know the process, and then that they would then announce themselves to their department. Hey, I am the local expert. Because the, the tech transfer office, you know, it sits in an office over there, I don't know, there's like a hundred different departments in this institution and it's thousands massive. of people. Sure. There's, there's no way they can do all that outreach. Yeah. yeah. The idea is that if we could plant one person in every department, they're, for, they're there for every faculty meeting, they're there at the student presentations, they're at the departmental retreats. The idea is that they would see it. Oh, that looks like that's translatable. Have you ever thought about talking to the tech transfer office about that idea? That looks really interesting. How about I make a connection for you? How about I send an email and I'll put you on it? Our hope is that we can sort of pull out more of it by basically getting in, you know, digging deeper into the departments and, and training one person in every department. So that's what 
we're kind of Almost doing that. Kind of evangelists within the organization. Exactly. And yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I, I give credit to Alan's a very visionary leader and very pioneering with a lot of those techniques. And I think um, really bodes well for the future of the uh, Vanderbilt and Nashville biotech ecosystem. Before we close, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts around next steps for your lab. What's your next uh, ambition? You know, you've uh, achieved many um, amazing milestones, you know, over your career. What, what do you have your eyes on right now, whether it be an area of science or a, a project endeavor? What, do you, what are the things that kind of get you excited going forward? Well, what we're trying to get our head around now is, is, is so we, we, you know, we operate more in antibody drugs for infectious diseases and really trying to how to how to fight infection and, you know, pandemics, you know, when they get big enough to become a pandemic. And so, like I just told you the story about how we responded in the moment, sort of rapid response. Everybody we will always need that capability, but it's not actually the best way to do it. The best way to do it is, is kind of the classic, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So I just told you the pound of cure, which was like eight people working seven days a week for months. The ounce of prevention would be, we already know what the that viruses most likely to cause a pandemic are. And we know, and we even know the ones that are the next level most likely and the related family members. And so what we've done here at the vaccine center is assembled those into a list and we call that a head 100. So this is a 100 most likely pandemic threats. Wow. And our idea is like, if we, what we did this last time was we had such a heavy lift because we hadn't really, there were no, we had start from ground zero. Yeah, yeah. If, we, if we had an antibody, yeah, if we had antibody drugs to even a subset of these already through a phase one clinical trial, you could instantly move them into a phase two efficacy trial and then into patient, patient use within weeks, probably weeks and months versus months and years. So we're continuing to chip away our own, picking off targets. You know, we, we're working on at any one time 10 or 20 of these viral targets, trying to go ahead and come up with antibody drugs. But really what we're also advocating for both locally and nationally, even at the, at the government level, is there should be a, a, a high-level investment to, like, not just us. There are plenty of people around the country who could work on this problem. And if collectively we could get a, a drugs to a, these top 100 pathogens past a phase one trial, we are going to be so much better off than if we hadn't. We may not be able to have guessed exactly correctly, yeah. but if you do enough of them, you're going to have an antibody that's proximal, kind of close enough to the target to have activity that's at least going to tide you off over till you get a better version of that drug made. So, so I see take like, them far enough along where they're almost like sitting on the bench, uh, ready to ready to go in the game, if you will. You know, exactly. more clinical testing required, but the amount of work it requires just to get through that first phase, you know, is, is right. also an, an enormous challenge in and of itself. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And I think, you know, on the top of minds of, of, uh, of many, you know, especially yeah. as we head into the winter months here and, you know, <laughs> knowing that the pandemic is still around us, you know, and so, yeah. um, and yeah. I think people, uh, one thing I've noticed too, coming through the pandemic, just a greater, broader appreciation for what, you know, uh, you know, biotech and, uh, discoveries in this area, you know, can can hold as it relates to impact and how important and integral it is to continue to invest, um, mm -hmm. not knowing what that next pathogen is going to be, but being prepared and being innovative with the way we mm -hmm. that we uh, get set for what's next for for the world. Well, yeah. um, 
Rob, it's been a true pleasure speaking with you today. You know, I admire your work and uh, really um, excited to see and know that, you know, you're uh, in a position to uh, help us, you know, uh, the, the end users down the road um, in the event and, and as, you know, further, you know, viruses uh, come and attack us. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.